Hi everyone and welcome to SAMA, a series which invites experts each week to talk about their area of expertise. This week we're delighted to have Lise Hendrickson-Jack to talk about fertility, infertility and pregnancy. Lisa is a certified fertility awareness educator and a holistic reproductive health practitioner who teaches women to chart their menstrual cycles for natural birth control, conception and monitoring overall health. In her new book, this is your cue to hold up your book, Lisa. Oh. In her new book, The Fifth Vital Sign, Lisa debunks the myth that regular ovulation is only important when you want children. By recognising the menstrual cycle as a vital sign, drawing heavily from the current scientific literature, Lisa presents an evidence-based approach to fertility awareness and menstrual cycle optimization. She hosts the Fertility Friday podcast, which is a weekly radio show devoted to helping women connect to their fifth vital sign by uncovering the connection between the menstrual cycle health, fertility, and overall health. Lisa, welcome to our show. Thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Now, the first question I'd love to ask you, what got you involved in fertility? What, drew, what, what was the magnet that brought you in? Mm -hmm. Well, in my case, I discovered fertility awareness at a pretty young age. I was about 18 or 19 years old. Yes. I joked that I was in my post-high school feminist phase. <laughs> and so <laughs> when I was in university, I was going to all these feminist talks, and we had a really awesome women's center on my campus, and they would bring in these really neat guest speakers that would talk about different things. Yes. And so there was a, an author that came to read an excerpt from her book, and I remember that she was just reading a part of it. And in that part, she mentioned that, you know, she discovered that she wasn't fertile every single day of her cycle. Oh, my goodness. And she discovered that there was a way to prevent pregnancy without using hormones, just by tracking, you know, the cervical mucus and the cervical position and the temperature. And so that was the first time I was ever exposed to that idea. And so basically, I ran to the library and I bought Taking Charge of Your Fertility, which is the fertility awareness Bible for any woman who charts her cycles. That's usually where we, you know, get our kind of um, gateway drug, if you will, to fertility awareness. Um, and so I promptly started charting my cycles. But, you know, looking back, it's kind of an interesting chain of events, because on my university campus, there was a group of women, and the, the group still meets, it's the fertility awareness charting circle in Edmonton, Alberta, Canada. And um, so, you know, every month, they would hold these sessions, and the women who led the sessions were trained in the method so I started attending I was charting and then soon after I took a training program and began teaching and so you know one thing led to another and here we are today I'm still teaching um, I've written this book <laughs> I've been we were talking in the pre-chat I've been podcasting for five years because even though I've been immersed in this information in this field and personally doing the charting and the teaching for nearly 20 years I you know the, the average woman still doesn't know how her body and her fertility works. So the average woman doesn't know that she's not fertile every single day, and then it's possible to identify the short window of fertility in her cycle, whether she wants to achieve pregnancy and time it accurately, or whether she wants to avoid hormonal birth control, but still have an effective method of birth control. You know, that's basically what I'm always sharing about, because still we haven't really, not, not a whole lot has changed in terms of our education system and what we're taught in junior high. Right, where we're taught, taught pills and other things, we're not taught to listen to our bodies. And so you're saying that by, by tracking, we can see when our ideal times are for being becoming 
pregnant and times to avoid other activities if you don't want to be pregnant. Is that how you... Yes, absolutely. And what's interesting about it is that it's not that complicated. So, of course, it's as complicated as we want it to be. I have an entire chapter about cervical mucus and we could talk about all the different kinds. But when it comes down to the practicality of a woman just kind of charting her cycle and using this method, um, the three main fertile signs that we pay attention to are cervical fluid, basal body temperature, and cervical position. And so for any woman who's listening who doesn't really know about it, cervical fluid, it can look like clear, stretchy, raw egg whites. So when you, you know, if you were to touch it and play with it, it would form a thread between your fingers. And so you produce that as you approach ovulation. It can also look like creamy white hand lotion. And so that is a central part of understanding how our fertility works because cervical fluid can keep sperm alive for up to five days. And so the only time in your cycle that you can get pregnant from a scientific standpoint is when you have this fluid. The fluid changes your vaginal pH. It indicates that the cervix is open. And then that's the only time that sperm can actually get in there and reach the fallopian tubes um, as we approach ovulation. And so outside of that window, the cervix is closed. The sperm can't actually go through the cervix because the cervix is blocked with a thick mucus plug. And the, the vagina is acidic. So the environment is very bad for sperm. We kill the sperm. <laughs> they don't live very long. Um, and so it's, it's, I think it's for a lot of women, what we're taught, at least what I was taught when I was in school and a lot of the women that I've come across over the years, a lot of us are taught that we can get pregnant on any day of our cycle, that there's no safe time. And that leads a lot of us to be really fearful. So then we end up taking birth control for years and years and years because we feel like that's the only way. Um, but it's interesting because the biology doesn't match what we're being taught. No. Does it relate to about a nine-day, nine-day, nine-day cycle so after your um menstruation there's a five, there's a nine day party period and there's a nine day period where you can become pregnant that's this the understanding of many people including myself is that very much flawed uh yes <laughs> i would say that um <laughs> i don't really mince words but i would say that it's it because um one of the challenges, so in my field, is that a lot of people equate fertility awareness with, say, the rhythm method. Yes. So a lot of us are familiar with the idea that, so what the, what the rhythm method is, is it's basically like a calendar calculation type of method. And yeah. so the idea behind it is, okay, if we track your cycles for a couple of times, let's say we track three, four, six cycles, then right. we can get an average of when you usually ovulate, and then we can kind of base, uh, you know, our we can guess when you're going to ovulate based on those calculations. So that's a lot of the time we think about the menstrual cycle, we think about, okay, the cycle is 28 days, ovulation happens on day 14, and it's always going to be the same. But when you look at an actual woman, a human being, and you track her actual cycles, yeah. <laughs> um, what you find is that the cycle is variable. And so if we break the cycle down, we have the 
periods. We have menstruation, which typically lasts anywhere from three to seven days in a healthy cycle. And then we enter into the pre-ovulatory phase. Uh, So the pre-ovulatory phase is the most variable part of the cycle because it's the most susceptible to stress and to different types of, you know, so for instance, if you do experience a lot of stress or something's happening, then that can really delay the cycle. So then, you know, ovulation happens. So we we produce cervical mucus for several days as we approach ovulation. And then after ovulation, the second half of the cycle is more stable and it typically is between about 12 to 14 days. So... Contrary to the myth that all the you know a woman's cycle is always 28 days, a healthy cycle can range anywhere from say 24 to 35 days. Gosh. And so that would mean in a healthy cycle, then with that range, ovulation could occur say as early as day 10 or as late as day 22 or day 23, for example. Wow. And so when with that in mind, the way that fertility awareness is different to the rhythm method is that fertility awareness is not about calendar calculation. So in a sense, it doesn't really matter what happened last cycle, because what we're going to do is we're going to check your signs every day. We're going to check for mucus every day. We're going to check your temperature every day. And then at the end of each day, we're going to say, am I fertile or not based on what I saw or didn't see? And so with that, that's why, so with the fertility awareness method, when used correctly, so, um, I teach my clients the symptothermal method. And so that symptom means that you're, you know, mixing the symptoms like the cervical fluid and the cervical position with the thermal, like the temperature. And so when you take those signs together from a scientific standpoint, when used correctly, the method has been shown to be up to 99.4% effective in preventing pregnancy. Cause you're not guessing, you're not like looking at a calendar. You're actually looking at your body. <laughs> yes. yes. Um, and you, you understand the science of it. And when you learn, when you receive instruction, instruction in a specific method of charting, then you can really get that high effectiveness because you know what you're doing. Right. Now, one of your signs, I understand basal temperature and, and also the, uh, the fluid, but what about the cervical position? How, how, how can you tell what position is the cervix is in, if, it, if it's smiling or not? <laughs> I like how you put that. Um, well, so what's interesting, I, I think, first of all, to, to kind of understand is that all of the different signs that we pay attention to, they're affected by our hormones. So as we approach ovulation, we're making increasing levels of estrogen. Eventually, the estrogen peaks, and that's what triggers ovulation. So for instance, when you're watching for cervical fluid, as you, as you approach ovulation and you're producing more estrogen, the cervical fluid that you see, the clear stretchy or the lotiony, that's because of the higher levels of estrogen stimulating the cervix to, make the, to, to produce the cervical mucus. Okay. And so in the same way then, as you approach ovulation, the estrogen triggers changes in the cervix itself. Yes. So um, what happens is the cervix becomes softer and the cervix and actually the whole uterus changes position. So typically as you approach ovulation, the cervix actually rises. So for a woman who, so not all women are comfortable, first of all, checking their cervix. (laughs) Um, But for women who are, you would insert your middle finger, because it's the longest one, (laughs) um, into your vagina, and you would check the position of the cervix each day. So you kind of like palpate it. So outside of the fertile window, it's kind of firm. It feels like the end of your nose. Okay. And it feels closed. So it just, you don't really feel much of an opening, so to speak. And then as you approach ovulation, the cervix rises position. So when, with my clients, I always use my hands. So if this was your uterus, this would be the cervix. So it actually rises inside the vagina. So you'd have to put your finger in a little bit like further to to find it softer, more like the texture of your lips. 
And you may feel a bit of a dimple because it's actually open during that time to allow the sperm to pass through. So you can, it's, it's a fascinating thing uh, for women to discover this about their bodies because, uh, you know, once you start charting, your cervix is all, like a woman's cervix is just cyclically doing these things. But when you start paying attention, then you can kind of see these differences and they're cyclical. So your cervix does this every cycle. Every time you ovulate, it changes around that fertile time. And then after ovulation, what happens is your ovaries produce a significant amount of progesterone. The only time we really produce a significant amount of progesterone is after ovulation. And then that progesterone shuts down our mucus production and it changes the position of the cervix back to the low, firm and closed. There's a lot that happens underneath a bonnet, isn't there? Right? We are, women are fascinating. Like our bodies are incredible. Wow. <laughs> it is incredible. Always in a state of flux. <laughs> <laughs> well, and the temperature I'll briefly mention as well, because I know you mentioned the temperature. So uh, what we're measuring when we're taking the BBT, the basal body temperature, is our resting metabolism. And so essentially what you're doing, if you know, you go to sleep and your body achieves that state of rest after at least five hours of sleep. So first thing in the morning, before you get out of bed, you take your temperature and it's a measure of your metabolism. And so all of these changes are affected by hormones, as I mentioned. So after ovulation, we're producing significant amounts of, of progesterone and the progesterone has a thermogenic effect on the body. So it actually, when you plot it on the graph, so when you take your temperature, you're taking it in like to the 10th of a degree. And so then you can actually see a shift on the graph, whether you're doing it on paper or on an app or something. And you can, you know, draw a line between the temperatures before and after ovulation. It's an obvious, clear shift that happens. And I know for myself, so when, you know, back to my post high school feminist phase and I was learning about charting, uh, I've always been a bit of a science nerd. And I just, it was just so fascinating to me to see this cyclical change. I could actually put it on a graph and I could see, identify every cycle when I would ovulate. And then when I was paying attention, my cervical mucus would change, my cervical position would change, my temperature would change. Now it's been almost 20 years, so I have all this data, if you will. <laughs> but it's, it's fascinating because you can do this at home. I mean, the, the, the second best way to check when you ovulate would be to have like a daily ultrasound, but I don't know anyone that has one of those in their house. So it's really empowering to be able to get this knowledge and information just by simple tracking. Right, right. Now, infertility, it seems to be more predominant now. More people are having difficulty having children. Why is that? Well, isn't that the, the $30 million question? But I mean, there's a lot of factors, I would say that um, in order, so a, a good place to start would be, okay, what is the recipe for pregnancy? What is the, the recipe for a successful fertilization, implantation, healthy pregnancy? And so you need, you know, healthy sperm, yeah. healthy eggs. Yeah. Uh, you need to have a healthy body on both sides. Um, you need to have healthy cervical fluid because that's what keeps the sperm alive. Right. Um, so just in the very kind of basic sense, yeah. there's a lot of things that are different now. So some of the things that are different now, uh, women are having children a, a lot later on yeah. average. Mm -hmm. So, you know, women are now starting their families in their mid thirties and late thirties. So that plays a role. Um, one of the things that I talk about in the book and I often find myself talking about with clients and on the podcast and basically anytime I have an opportunity is the de declining sperm 
count and um, de de declining sperm quality. Yeah. That's something uh, I'm not sure that most people realize that when you have a couple that is dealing with fertility challenges, that 40 to 50% of the time, it's related to male factor infertility. Oh. Right. And so when you take a look at the historical data, you know, the average man in the 1940s had a sperm concentration of about 113 million sperm based on one of the studies I was looking at. And your average man today has an average uh, sperm concentration of anywhere from 40 to 50 million sperm per milliliter. That's yeah, that's like a 60 to 70%. <laughs> decline in the count of sperm and so uh, that's a big factor that because I, the reason why I kind of lead with that is that when you have a couple that's struggling to conceive it's typically the woman who thinks that it's all me it must have been because I ate those you know whatever but as women we tend because we're the ones that carry the baby especially when we start tracking our cycles we kind of assume that it has to be completely 100% us because we all assume that it's the male part is completely fine. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to mention, and I've seen that a lot. I've seen, um, so for instance, uh, I mean, we could, if you want to get into sperm a bit more, we could talk a bit more about it, but um, because the sperm count and, you know, quality has been declining, right. what has really changed is um, like, we've just continued to lower the bar. <laughs> so what we used to consider normal, we just keep like lowering it and lowering it. Yeah. So now where it's at with, um, so for instance, the World Health Organization released a document in 2010. They may have released an updated version by now, but um, there's specific parameters that are listed for sperm quality and they're very low. So um, now, you know, if you have a sperm concentration of 15 million sperm and above, 50 million sperm per milliliter and above, that's considered to be normal. Uh, if the morphology is 4% or more, that's normal. 4% morphology means that out of every 100 sperm, four are normal, meaning uh, like, so abnormal sperm means like two heads, no head, two tails, like just malformed, et cetera, et cetera. Like if you look at the pictures, they, they don't look like what we think of. So yeah, so that's all, I, I, I can kind of put a pin in that. But that's a factor that we have to consider. It's just um, kind of understand. You're saying out of 100 sperm, four are abnormal or four are normal? Four are normal. So 96, the two heads, no head, wow. no tail, misshapen head. So when you look at the like the World Health Organization, um, the, the kind of lower minimum for what mm -hmm. is considered to be normal, yeah. And when you look at, you know, lab results, what they'll show is normal <laughs> is considered 4% morphology or higher. So wow. 96 out of every 100 are incapable of fertilizing anything because they have serious malformations wow. and four are normal. Um, yeah. And, and so <laughs> we can't understand. Wrong. Is it a no. <laughs> yeah, no, it's yeah. But then when you look at what the research has to say, like ideal sperm, morphology and motility so this you know one of the three kind of main they look at morphology motility and the the concentration so optimal for a natural conception at home is is more like 50 40 to 50 million sperm per milliliter concentration minimum um 15 percent morphology 
I think for men, um, one of the things I often um, say to my clients to, for us to get our head around this is that even the healthiest man alive, the majority of his sperm are not normal. So, um, and what's interesting, we talked a, a little bit briefly about cervical fluid. So it's like mother nature knew that the majority of the sperm that men produce are not capable of fertilizing anything. So within our cervical mucus, there's actually a filtration system. We produce different types of mucus. Our cervix has these different folds and called the cervical crypts and they, there's different crypts that produce different types of mucus. And so for instance, like if I'm in my fertile window and I'm having sex with my partner or something like that, my, my cervical mucus actively filters out sperm that are malformed and sperm that have poor motility. All leaving this, only oh pardon all this all this knowledge will uh, ruin the moment wouldn't it <laughs> um i mean i, I it's hard to ask me because i've known this for years i don't i don't think it does i think that it can help us to appreciate it more yeah yeah, yeah. um and I just think that, so for instance, when we think about fertility and the role of sperm, yes. the role of sperm is often overstated. So mm -hmm. it's kind of like, we often think of the sperm as the valiant warriors swimming to, you know, they're just so, but we, as when you look at what happens, like from a scientific standpoint, um, cervical mucus is amazing. So like I said, I have a whole chapter about it. So I don't necessarily, like if you want, it's, it's all about how far do you want to take this, right? <laughs> but um, so there's a few really interesting things about cervical mucus. So yeah. one of them is that cervical mucus rapidly draws the sperm into the cervical crypt. So if you look at it under a microscope, it has these channels yes. that um, rapidly transport sperm. So our mucus is like doing a lot of work getting the sperm in to where it needs to go really quickly. Wow. And then once the sperm get in there, our uterus has, like we have these smooth muscle contractions. So the sperm are like, they, yes, they're valiant and they're swimming, but our, as a woman, our bodies are actually actively drawing the sperm up to where it needs to go. Mm -hmm. And so from ejaculation, you know, when you look at, again, I'm a, I'm a big nerd. So I've, I, took a lot of time reading the research but sperm has been found in the fallopian tubes as quickly as five to ten minutes after you know insemination wow. yeah so so our bodies do a lot of the heavy lifting uh, <laughs> so it's it's helpful to know that i feel like it's nice and important yeah, to know yeah. that yeah. yeah wow so why do you think this is back to the fifty million dollar question again. Why do you think the uh, fertility, the uh, the sperm rate uh, count has gone down so much over recent years? I mean, I think there's a lot of different factors. We can't discount the impact of pollution and the environmental factors. I right. mean, if you even look in nature, there's um, a lot of different signs of how pollution affects. So, for instance, the you know billions of tons of chemicals in the air and the water. We know that a lot of chemicals have um, a structure that's similar to our hormones. So a lot of these chemicals are characterized as endocrine disruptors or as xenoestrogens because they are synthetic chemicals that are similar enough in structure to estrogen that are, they kind of stimulate our estrogen receptors. Right. So as a man, <laughs> men produce 10 times the testosterone that, that women do. And exposing men to a lot of estrogenic chemicals can reduce their testosterone levels and have a disruptive impact on their endocrine systems. 
so, you know, I'm sh when you, if you think about the, the impact of all of that and then all the chemicals that we use, so beyond the environment, um, all the different chemicals that we use can have a disruptive effect on the, yeah. the endocrine system, the types of foods that we're eating or not eating. So in industrialized nations, we've kind of moved away from a lot of um, ancestral high quality um, nutrient dense foods in favor of <laughs> processed foods and junk foods and all those types of things. And what's interesting is when you look at traditional cultures, many traditional cultures had a sense that when you were trying to conceive, you should take a period of time to, you know, eat certain foods and just have a general kind of preparation, preparing your body for pregnancy. But our culture largely lacks that beyond go off the pill and take a prenatal, let alone the thought that maybe men should be doing that too. Right. You know, so if you're, so a lot of lifestyle factors, when we look at what can impact sperm quality negatively, and it's very similar to what can impact egg quality negatively. So the research is very much parallel. But for instance, like drinking and smoking, um, marijuana was just legalized in Canada. So <laughs> cigarettes and or marijuana, like all the smoking, but you know, all of those types of things. There's a lot of research that shows that alcohol consumption, cigarette smoking, marijuana smoking um, can have a negative impact on sperm quality. Okay. Junk food, eating a lot of sugar, um, even over-exercising, like exercising too much, like five, six, seven times a week. Um, and then if the testicles are too hot on a regular basis, so there is some credence to like, are you in the hot tub all the time, et cetera, et cetera. So there's a lot of different factors that can have a, a negative impact on sperm. But the good thing about the sperm conversation is that when you, would, when you address those factors and also focus on specific nutrients that we know support sperm production and sperm quality, you can actually do a lot to improve Good. to improve yeah. it so there's good news there it's like good news and bad news it's a sandwich <laughs> <laughs> the um the oxygen are they are they in the soy milk and in plastics that people are using plastic water containers perhaps yeah um i mean bp like we can like we could go down the list like bpa the plastic containers yes. um there's the chemicals in the non like so the non-stick pans and things like that the um the perfluorinated chemicals the um there's and even soy you mentioned soy so soy specifically is estrogenic it's a plant-based estrogen so it's not the same as a chemical estrogen okay. but uh Excessive soy consumption has been shown to disrupt the menstrual cycle, tends to lengthen the, the follicular phase, so delay ovulation, mm -hmm. and excessive soy consumption has also been shown to interfere with uh, testosterone levels and sperm production. So, And then the EMF radiation, so for men who have their cell phone in their pocket all the time or have their laptop mm -hmm. on their lap when they're working, that's been shown to decrease. So there's a lot of, uh, it's, it's helpful to kind of first start with the lifestyle factors that can negatively negatively impact yes and if you know what these what these uh negative lifestyle things are you can change them i guess get glass containers for, for cooking or for eating and throw, yeah there's a lot of things you can do non-stick pans that's one that's new to me Nasty. well yeah the the non-stick pans it's interesting so they off gas um pfcs which are known environmental pollutants and um, it's just there's a number of chemicals that have been shown to 
be disruptive of the endocrine system. And it's one of the hardest conversations uh, that I often have because it can be so overwhelming. So I think it's equally an issue for men, but for women, all of the beauty products, all of the cleaning products, unless you're specifically looking for uh, natural type products, yeah. they all contain these disruptive chemicals. So for instance, if you think about like hand lotions and just the basic stuff, shampoo, conditioner, deodorant, they all contain fragrance parabens, like all these different chemicals, because that's just how they're made. So when you first discover this, so for a lot of women, perhaps they start charting their cycles, and they start to notice this connection, and they might start switching out some of their products, menstrual products or another, if you're using regular pads and tampons from the store that are not organic, they bleach those, they have menstrual products, tampons, pads have been found to contain dioxins. Wow. <laughs> and so you're putting those in your vagina, which is obviously similar to putting things in your mouth. So it's very absorbent. So for some women, they may, okay, they, they discover this, they start using natural beauty products, or they, you know, maybe they start making their own lotion, or uh, they'll start using different types of menstrual products that don't contain these chemicals. And some women will find that some of their symptoms, if they had hard periods, really painful or heavy, or maybe they had some PMS symptoms, some women find that some of those symptoms lessen just by reducing their exposure to these chemicals because these chemicals can disrupt the endocrine system and change our hormonal profile and things like that. Right. Mm. Yeah. So, and then obviously for the men, it can disrupt their testosterone production. As, so when you're exposing yourself to chemical estrogens all the time. Yes. Yes. Well, it's countering testosterone, isn't it? It's, yeah. And we should probably mention the most potent xenoestrogen. So the most potent endocrine disrupting chemical, which would be the birth control pill. Um, so you had asked about some of the different challenges. Uh, you know, yes. why is it that couples are facing fertility yes. challenges? So there's no research to show that the pill causes any kind of issues permanently for fertility. Mm -hmm. But what we do know about hormonal birth control is it does have a temporary, it causes a temporary delay in the return of natural Okay. fertility. Mm -hmm. So um, for instance, if a woman is on the pill, if she's taking it long term, so in the research, long term is defined as two years or more. Okay. And a lot of women are taking it five years, 10 years, 15 years, even 20 years. Mm -hmm. And so what happens is when you come off the pill, it typically takes some time before the cycles normalize. Mm -hmm. And so on average, it can take anywhere from nine to 12 cycles before the cycles go back to normal. So that's Gosh, nine to 12 cycles. Yeah, it's not like a, because cycles doesn't mean years. Some women oh. come off the pill and they get their period right away. Some women, it takes a couple of months. Okay. So nine to 12 cycles is more like 12 to 18 months. So um, one of the challenges, so I think of it from a woman's perspective. So let's say that I've been very responsible. I went on the pill, you know, as soon as I was sexually active. And I stayed on it throughout my 20s and possibly 30s. And I finally got it all together. I've got my career. I've got the partner. You know, we're ready to have family. So often, you know, we're kind of counseled by our doctors to wait. Like, don't go off of it until you're ready to have a family. So I go off of it. Yes. And I'm ready to have a family now. Yeah, <laughs> now and like, and I mean now. <laughs> so then, you, you know, the first cycle that you try, you're kind of cool. You're like, okay, that's okay. And also what I like to say is that as women, we're taught that we can get pregnant every day of our cycle and that basically pregnancy is a given. So you spend a lot of your younger years like 
deathly afraid of an unplanned pregnancy because you're so scared that it's going to happen. So it doesn't occur to you that things might change in your late 20s and early 30s or that the pill might suppress your fertility for a period of time. Like it doesn't really occur to us because we're not taught that. Yes. So by the second cycle, we're already starting to be concerned. And so, you know, six months in, a year in, we're already at the fertility clinic. We're already getting, you know, IUIs and considering IVF. And when you look at what the research has to say is that it's around that time, that year mark, that 18 months post pill that your body is finally starting to normalize. So uh, I would say that it's, a, it's an interesting factor that can be contributing to it um, only because we just don't have the knowledge. If we had the knowledge, we could be modifying our use of birth control so that when we know that we're wanting to have babies in the next couple of years, we can start coming off of it and just letting our bodies normalize. Right, right. Well, that makes sense. Now, you just, uh, you just quickly mentioned artificial um, insemination, like IVF. Mm-hmm. Uh, can you explain the process to us, please? Well, I'll say that it's not my area of specialization, <laughs> first of all. Um, I mean, there's different types of artificial reproductive technologies. So there's intrauterine insemination, IUI, where they will, you know, take the sperm, wash it, basically isolate the sperm that is of that they determine to be of better quality and inseminate it directly into the uterus. So bypassing the cervix and the cervical mucus that we talked about. And one of the challenges in um, our current kind of state of affairs with regards to fertility and artificial reproductive technology is that part of the reason that I mentioned the World Health Organization has such a low kind of bar for sperm quality is because when the sperm is really low, Um, the solution to male factor infertility, I'm not sure if you're aware, but the current solution is IVF. (laughs) I'm not sure if you're aware of that. So it's like, instead of trying to address the male factor, the solution to when a man's sperm is too, like the quality is too low, they just do IVF. Um, So with in vitro fertilization, then, I mean, there's different ways to do it. Sometimes they'll, you know, match the sperm with the the egg and have the sperm kind of self-select and you know, penetrate the egg. Sometimes they'll do ICSI where they put the sperm in the egg. They choose the sperm and put it in the egg. Um, But basically it involves fertilizing the egg, making embryos, and then putting, you know, putting them in the uterus and seeing if they stick. That's a very non-scientific basic way of explaining it (laughs) for any doctors who are listening and are just like, what did she just say? (laughs) (laughs) But that's the gist of it, right? Okay. 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 Now they make several embryos. You said what happens if, well, if say five embryos develop, do they put the other embryos on hold and just implant one embryo back into the uterus? Well, so that, I mean, that really depends on where you're doing it, the, the clinic and all those types of things. Okay. Um, to, to kind of dial it a step back, how many embryos that you make successfully also depends on how many eggs are retrieved. And right. so the process itself, I mean, they're, they're, using, um, they're using drugs and hormones to create a cycle. So they, and they, you know, they give you drugs to make it so that when you're, Um, developing follicles you develop multiple follicles so that they can take multiple eggs Um, there's a lot of different factors that would contribute to how successful it could be the most um, the factor that has the strongest kind of um, how do I say this when you're looking to anticipate the success of IVF one of the strongest 
factors that is correlated with the success of IVF is the age of the woman. Yes. Um, so the younger she is, the more likely that they're, you know, they are to get multiple eggs and for the procedures to be successful, the older that she is, um, the less likely. So I think one of the myths about IVF is that it doesn't really matter what you do. IVF will always save the day, but the chances of IVF being successful for a woman who is in her late thirties and early forties, it's, it's very, it's, it's not the same. Um, and I think we see a lot of images in the media of celebrities <laughs> getting pregnant. In my book, I gave the example of uh, Janet Jackson because she was famously pregnant at 50. Um, and so it gives us the thought that, oh, I can do that too and I can get IVF, but we just don't know. The chances of a woman at 50 becoming pregnant with IVF from her own eggs from the scientific research perspective are zero. Um, when I was looking at research studies, women over 45 there, or 46, there were no cases of IVF successfully working. So when we see some of those images in the media, we don't know if perhaps they had frozen their eggs when they were younger so that they were being, you know, that they were using their younger eggs. We don't know if they used donor eggs. So eggs from a younger woman you know, implanted with the sperm and then used. So that's just something to point out because I think it's a, a big myth that IVF will work at any age and it can solve fertility problems for everybody, but it doesn't really work like that. Why does your ability to become pregnant reduce as you get older? What are the, what are the physiological, physiological changes that take place? Like you said about eggs, is it the quality of egg that declines? Um, well, yeah, I mean, as we get older, it's, it's well documented that egg quality declines with age and the instance of chromosomal abnormalities increase. We're more susceptible to oxidative stress and damage. So um, for that to interfere with DNA replication. One of the things that I found when I was looking at the way that age impacts fertility was the, the rate of miscarriage, which of course is to also would have to do with the quality of eggs. Um, let me see if I have the stats so that I, I can say them off the top of my head, but maybe I can find the more specific stats. I think it's here. Um, so there was one Danish study where they examined the pregnancy outcomes of over 600,000 women. So it was a really interesting study and they had a lot of interesting data points. Um, so overall, the total miscarriage rate was 13.5%, but when they broke it down by age, uh, women who were in their early 20s, the miscarriage rate was closer to about 9%. Whereas by the time that a woman was in her 40s, so say between the ages of like 40 and 42, the miscarriage rate was about 50%. Gosh. And by the time that a woman reaches age 45 or older, the miscarriage rate is about 75%. So by the time you hit 40, it's like one out of every two pregnancies results in miscarriage. And by the time you're, you hit 45 and above, it's like you have to get pregnant four times to keep one. Yes. So when I share this with women, with my clients in general, and talk about this, it's something that we don't really know. As a woman, like I've had a miscarriage, and it's like until you have a miscarriage, you don't realize how many other people have miscarriages. Because then all of a sudden you say, oh, yeah, I had a miscarriage, and like six women come out the woodwork and be like, me too, me too, me too. So we don't really realize how common that it is and how much more it happens as we get older. And, of course, that's to do 
with egg quality and also sperm quality. Cause I think, again, we don't really think of like, we think of men cause men are fertile all the time. Men are the ones that have the sperm all the time. Like you produce sperm every day. And although men do go through their own andropause, men obviously do continue to produce sperm. However, the sperm that an 80 year old man is producing is not the same as the sperm of a 20 year old man. We somehow don't equate that. So I think there's multiple factors, but, um, uh, and again, like there's, there are things that you can do to improve egg quality, to reduce oxidative stress, to really focus on that. Yes. But there's a limit to what we can do because there is with women, there's a hard stop to us being able to reproduce. Like, you know, we, the fertility very clearly does decline with age. Okay. Um, yeah. Wow. Okay. Um, Oh, <laughs> I was so busy listening. <laughs> <laughs> what do I ask next? I know. <laughs> yeah, but, I mean, if you if you if you're having difficulty becoming pregnant, what kind of foods would you have to increase chances? Um, I mean, that's a good question. I would say when I hear if you're having difficulty becoming pregnant, there's so many things that um, just in general. So I would say. Um, you want to just look at a couple different things. Like, have you come off the pill recently? Like, have, has your body had the, ch- the time to transition? Uh-huh. Um, I, I suppose I would, like, because of, it's my area, like, of the expertise in my field, I would want to know if she's charting, if she's looking at her menstrual cycle. So one of the great things about charting, so my book is called The Fifth Vital Sign because I'm arguing that the menstrual cycle is like a vital sign that we can pay attention to. And if there's something off in the menstrual cycle, then it can give us information about what could be happening health-wise and give us clues as to where we should look. So I would want to know what her cycle is like, if she's ovulating, if she's ovulating regularly, if her periods are normal, you know, if generally her cycle is normal. So in a normal cycle, you have a period, (laughs) it has a beginning, middle and an end, and then it's over. You don't have excessive pain. Excessive pain with menstruation is very common. A lot of women do experience pain, but it's not normal. Outside of the uterus, instances of pain are considered a problem. Somehow in our culture, it's just like pain in the uterus is totally fine, (laughs) but um, it's a sign of inflammation and potentially a more serious problem like endometriosis. So I think, you know, look look at that is her period normal yes is she ovulating does she produce sufficient cervical mucus when after ovulation is the second half of her cycle long enough you know is she um is it about two weeks it's supposed to be about 12 to 14 days um has her partner been tested has his sperm been tested have you looked at the results so we talked a little bit about that um I haven't seen it very much when I'm working with women that if they're struggling to conceive that their partner's sperm is perfect, okay. more often than not, the sperm is much less than ideal. So okay. um, before I even talk about like what she should be eating, like these are all the things that it's like, you know, does she, is her, is her thyroid functioning normally? Yes. Is she overall healthy? You know, like all the lifestyle pieces. <clears throat> Um, so once you've kind of gone there, of course, there's specific foods that you can eat for, to, to improve fertility. And so I come from more of an ancestral perspective because it's interesting. You can learn a lot from the combination of ancestral practices and also modern science to kind of see why these practices work. So um, understanding what is important for fertility. One of my top food recommendations for women who are wanting to conceive and prepare for pregnancy and support their hormonal health is liver and organ meats, which might seem a little strange. 
Mm. Um, but liver is in, in many ways, nature's multivitamin. Yes. Um, in order to have healthy eggs, um, a healthy reproductive system in order for men to make healthy sperm, we need vitamin A preformed vitamin A retinol, um, which is different than the vitamin A, the beta carotene that's found in carrots. So the preformed retinol is in foods and the most reliable source is liver. Um, and you can also obtain vitamin A through cod liver oil. Um, so, but liver is not a vitamin A supplement. It's a source of vitamin B12, folate, choline, zinc, iron, it really goes on and on and on. Okay. So for a woman who's trying to conceive, it's not something, it depends on where you live in the world and what your culture is and all that. A lot of us don't necessarily consume it regularly anymore, um, but it, it is a, a, an important source of nutrition to consider adding in when you are, especially if you've been struggling to conceive. Um, as well, you know, fish, so sources of fish oil, so fish, seafood, uh, for the omega-3 fatty acids, the DHA. And so we were talking a little bit about egg quality. So vitamin A is essential for egg quality, um, the antioxidants, you know, selenium, but also, um, and CoQ10 is well known to be supporting egg quality and sperm quality. And um, the highest natural source of that is actually liver and heart meat, which is interesting. Um, so, I mean, I could, I could go on a little bit more, uh, but um, would, you, would you like me to keep, <laughs> to keep going on the fertility foods? And all of your um, healthy foods come from animals. There's a lot of vegetarians that will be listening and thinking, golly, what can I do? I'm, I'm, I'm just left all alone. Are there any foods that vegetarians can have that are also going to help them? Um, well, I mean, I suppose it would depend on what types of foods that um, they include. So some vegetarians may eat eggs, and so eggs are a good source of choline and folate. Um, and if they, if they do consume, say, dairy products like butter, and so part of the reason that I talk about these foods, it's, it's based on what it's, it's based on what like the research tells us that we need to make healthy sperm and eggs and healthy hormones. So for instance, for a woman who is struggling to get pregnant, yes. um, then we have to look at all these different factors and we can look at the menstrual cycle. So in order to make your estrogen and progesterone mm. in sufficient quantities, all of these steroid hormones like estrogen and progesterone are made from cholesterol. That's how our body makes them. So if you have a woman who's struggling to produce enough of these hormones, mm. then at some point you'd have to ask, you know, is she consuming anim any animal fat? And so it's a, it's a difficult conversation to have. So I would suppose it would just depend if, if, you're, if you're able to add in some of those foods. Because again, like the, the, if, if you're talking about just like a woman who's actually struggling to conceive and she's kind of doing everything, then in that situation i think it's helpful to look at some of these things if she's not and she's completely fine then you know what i'm saying it's a kind of a different conversation right right okay well you've talked about the uh changes um so of course oh no go ahead Sorry, no, no, you, no i was interrupting you please please continue <laughs> um no it's okay i i kind of lost my train of thought <laughs> we can always bounce back yeah. Uh, you talked about the changes that take place um, during each menstrual cycle. What changes take place when there's a successful uh, fertilization of an egg? Mm -hmm. um, 
Well, that's a good question. Um, so in the menstrual cycle, as I mentioned, as you approach ovulation, you're making significant amounts of estrogen. Eventually the estrogen, you know, rises to a certain level that it triggers your pituitary to release the luteinizing hormone, um, which is what if any, if women are listening and they've been trying to conceive, if you take an ovulation predictor kit, it's testing for the, the LH surge, the luteinizing hormone. And, um, and then that's what triggers the ovaries to release the eggs. So then after ovulation, you make progesterone. So uh, what happens then in the second half of the cycle is if an egg is fertilized, so that would mean that, you know, you had sex in the fertile window, um, your cervical mucus kept the sperm alive. And so the sperm was actually already waiting in the fallopian tubes when you ovulated. Right. Um, fertilization then happens in the fallopian tube. And it takes about a week or so for the egg to kind of make its way into the uterus. So then fertilization would start about, say, a week or so, six to seven days after ovulation had occurred. And your progesterone level, so when you don't get pregnant, the progesterone rises and then it drops off. And then you get your period, Mm -hmm. you know, about 12 to 14 days later. But when you conceive, the progesterone rises, but your (laughs) <laughs> you, you know, the egg is trying to implant. So the progesterone continues to rise. Yes. And the progesterone is crucial in preparing the uterine lining for fertilization. There's a short window of time where the egg can actually implant into the uterine lining. And so I, I would say one of the major changes. So if you're charting your cycles, and you're monitoring your temperatures, for a lot of women, the first signs of pregnancy are the, the temperature not going back down. So instead of having your temperature go down like 12 to 14 days and then you get your period, the temperature rises. So some women, it just kind of rises and others, it actually, like there's like a, they call it a triphasic shift, but there's like a shift in ovulation. And then there's, for some women, they'll see another shift after they've gotten pregnant. Um, And then for, for, on a practical level, so when you're charting your cycles, 18 high temperatures is how we would confirm pregnancy without a test. and then also for some women, they might find that their breasts, for some women, their breasts get really tender. And so that's one of the first signs that, oh, I might be pregnant. That okay. comes before the nausea. And it's again, I guess, with the hormones, the hormones. Um, yeah. Yeah. When you listen to all the, um, all the steps that take place, it's really a miracle. Each- <laughs> <laughs> it is because every chain, every link has got to succeed. Every, every, every step has got to be good for, you know, for it to continue. It's so true. I mean, when you understand all of these little things that can happen, I mean, first of all, like when you, when you have sex, half the sperm are like in the wrong fallopian tube. Yeah. So few of the sperm actually make it up because, you know, the the mucus is actively um, filtering out the sperm that, so the sperm that are abnormally shaped, our mucus has these little loaf-like structures that stick to them and prevent them to, from going forward. And the ones that can't swim properly, they can't, the, the mucus is thick enough to make, so they can't swim. So quite literally, like the majority of them don't even get a shot. <laughs> Half of them are in the wrong tube. Gosh. And um, I mean, there's some research that suggests that the egg chooses. So you need multiple sperm to 
weaken the structure of the egg yes. so that it, it, one of them can be let in. Um, but then the egg kind of chooses the one that gets to, so it's, it, it's, a, it is a miracle really. And then when you read, so when you read about implantation, I think that's really interesting as well. Cause I mentioned there's like a small window, the, the uterine lining is only receptive to the fertilized egg for a very short window of time. So it all has to work out <laughs> um, quite well. And then as we know, I mean, there's also the additional screening tool, you know, a certain percentage of pregnancies end in miscarriage. So it, everything really does have to align in order for, um, in order for us to be here. So you and I, we are miracles. Like, how did we even get here? I know. <laughs> it, is, it is a miracle. Or, or curse, whichever way you think about it. But um, with, with IVF, we've got no, human intervention that's is bypassing a lot of the safeguards. So if, a, if I know we're using microscopes just to observe the quality, but you can't see the DNA <laughs> of the sperm. So how do we know whether a sperm is good and viable? I've always wondered that. I've always wondered that. I, as a fertility awareness educator, especially I think IUI gets me a little bit more because I always think to myself, like, so wait a minute, we're bypassing the mucus, like we're going straight to the uterus, like we know more than Mother Nature. But I mean, you can take a look at a sperm under a microscope and identify if it looks normal or not. Yeah. Uh, but of course, there's going to be things that we don't understand about yeah. why would that, you know, if the egg really does choose, why would the egg choose this one versus it's that the one? Thing, because already they're, they're all strong swimmers. They've bypassed all the mucus linings and all the filters. They've, they've perhaps maybe 10 have made it to the egg. How do people look through a microscope know which one of those 10 is the right one to use? This is the yep, we don't, yeah. But I mean, ultimately, there's still additional screening tools because not all embryos, so when they put together, so as I mentioned, there's different ways to put embryos together. So sometimes they do it where the they do let, like they put the sperm and the egg together and let, let it happen. So sometimes they do do that. And so that, and other times they insert it with a micro needle. I would yeah. love to see one of those <laughs> <laughs> under, under the microscope because that, that boggles my mind. So the egg is the size of a dot. So if you look in a book or something like the size of a period, yeah. you, you can, I have not seen an egg with the naked eye, but my understanding is that you can actually see the egg with the naked eye. But the sperm is so tiny, you know. So, but um, there's additional screening. So when they're doing, um, you know, I've worked with a lot of clients who've gone through different procedures. And so sometimes they'll retrieve the eggs, they'll add the sperm to it, and none of the eggs, none of the embryos will be viable. Right. Or a few of them will be. So they put them together, but that doesn't mean 100% of those are viable. And then once they have the embryos, I think one of the questions that you asked earlier is like, what do they do with all of them? So, I mean, in some cases, I know that they freeze them. And then if you have like a lot of... Oof. Not a lot, but like a lot. <laughs> Does that make sense? Like a lot of them versus like, anyways, um, I'm just being silly now. But so they'll, you know, freeze them. And then um, I had, I interviewed Dr. Mar Marjorie Dix Dixon. She's a, a local, she lives in, you know, she's a Toronto IVF specialist, mm -hmm. um, reproductive endocrinologist. But she described how IVF works in threes. So what she described was the goal is to, you know, you have you create a certain number of embryos and each IVF cycle she described a full cycle as being like three so you okay. take enough embryos that you you know you try once and if it doesn't work you try again and if it doesn't work you try again and that's a full okay. cycle okay so mother nature is still in there 
not all those embryos survive. And then even if we implant them, not all of them grow into babies. So I think it's a combination then of human intervention and magic. Can't bypass human magic completely. No. Getting close to the end of the summer, um, I wanted to ask one other question that's come in. It's um, stretch marks. Mm. How can how can we avoid stretch marks? Well, I mean that's a really good question. I don't know if you can ever completely avoid stretch marks, but there's a few things that you can do if you understand just again physiology, what's happening in pregnancy. Uh, so, I mean, one of the nutrients that becomes um, more crucial and crucial. One of the nutrients that we need a lot more of during pregnancy is is glycine. Is okay. you know the building blocks, collagen and gelatin. What are the building blocks that make our skin? <laughs> um, and so, uh, one of uh, if you think about it, the uterus expands in size. Uh, I don't know exactly off the top of my head, but the uterus expands several times in size. Obviously, our bodies expand in size, and yeah. we're making a tiny human that's made of skin and bones yes and connective tissue and ligaments and joints so one of the things that you can do to to at least to minimize to kind of do what you can is ensure that you are consuming foods that are rich in collagen and gelatin so um if a person is vegetarian that that that's a challenge because collagen and gelatin these are primarily coming from animal foods. Okay. So if you are not averse to, say, bone broths, doing soups and stews and things like that, that, that is a good way to, um, to incorporate that into your diet if you're willing to kind of simmer down the joint, knuckle bones and things like that so that you're getting a lot of collagen and gelatin. Or if you're open to, say, if you do smoothies or something like that, your protein source could be like a collagen or a gelatin powder. But just making sure that you're actually getting that and then when you look at what you require to make tissues and skin um, you also require vitamin c um, to develop your your connective tissue so i would say the best thing that you could do is to try your best to increase your consumption of collagen and gelatin rich foods okay. and ensure that you're having enough vitamin c to develop those tissues okay do you would you not recommend a uh, tropical oil or cream well, you can certainly you can certainly do that, but when you think about what is like, so you're because I've I've been pregnant twice and I have the stretch marks to prove it, <laughs> and um and so when you think about what's what's happening in your body from that kind of biological level, if you if you're not giving your body with, if you're not giving your body the building blocks that it needs to, basically double the size. <laughs> you know, certain words, and to also build the baby itself, mm -hmm. then um, the cream is kind of secondary to the actual fundamental building blocks of your tissues. Okay. Okay. That's so important. Okay. Now, how do people contact you or learn more? Um, well, first of all, thank you for having me and for asking <laughs> such great questions. This has been a lot of fun. Um, so you can find me uh, if you like podcasts, uh, if you listen to podcasts, you can type in Fertility Friday on your favorite podcast and, and my name will come up. My website is fertilityfriday.com. And of course, my book is The Fifth Vital Sign, Master Your Cycles and Optimize Your Fertility. I talked a lot today about the scientific references and you know where things are coming from, the information. And so in the book, I cited over a thousand research citations. My aim was to make it a resource 
especially for women who are interested in fertility awareness, there's a lot of skepticism. A lot of people wonder if it works. A lot of people conflate it with the rhythm method. And so I wanted to create something where it's like, okay, if you see something in there and you're not sure, then you can actually go to the back and see where the information is coming from. Um, so the fifth vital sign is available on Amazon in ebook, paperback, and audiobook formats. So. Fantastic. Well, Lisa, thank you so much for coming on to our show. It's been brilliant you having you on. You've answered some tough questions and you uh, well, they're, they're very pertinent questions for today as well. I mean, pertinent details. Uh, it is true that very uh, most couples, I'd say, are having difficulty having children. And you've provided some answers. So thank you so much for that. And it's been fantastic having you with us. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you so much for having me. Okay. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs>